As America celebrates the anniversary of its founding, it also marks the 150th anniversary of one of its most important battles, the Civil War Battle of Gettysburg. On this episode of The Scenic Route, Andrew McRae talks to Gettysburg Battlefield Ranger Eric Campbell for an in-depth look back at one of the battle's forgotten Union heroes. Maybe we'll visit about some of the people here involved in Gettysburg first, and, and why don't we go to uh, Meade? You know, we hear about Lee, and uh, we've heard about Grant, but uh, Grant wasn't the, the big guy on the Union side that was here. Yeah, a lot of people um, who visit Gettysburg have never heard of the man who actually won, won the battle, uh, Major General George Gordon Meade. He, took, uh, he actually took command of the Army just a few days before the battle actually started, and if you put yourself in his shoes for a second, you'll realize how much pressure he was under. He, uh, he had never commanded an Army, and he's in the middle of a campaign that's going to decide the fate of the country, and he's going to soon face a, a Confederate Army led by General Lee that many people considered invincible. The Army and Lee himself had been so successful, so he was under tremendous pressure, and he, within days, is involved in this you know, climactic battle. And he does an incredible job uh, taking over and, and not crumbling under the pressure and makes all the right decisions uh, eventually in the end, and he wins the battle. And yet many visitors come here today, and they, they've never heard of him. You know, where's Grant's statue? Uh, you know, Grant was 1,000 miles from Gettysburg, uh, and yet, yet Meade's relatively unknown, which is unfortunate. Uh, what was Meade's background before he takes over as the, the commander here? He was um, he was. Uh, Meade was a professional soldier by trade. He had graduated from West Point early in his career, served in the Mexican War, had become a civilian engineer for a while, but he rejoined the Army, and he basically designed lighthouses along the coast and up in the Great Lakes area, and that's what he was doing when the war started. Uh, here at the battle, where do we see his, his handiwork or maybe his, uh, his thought behind the, the battle as the commander here? How do we see that take shape, I guess, maybe in the Battle of Gettysburg? Uh, on the battlefield itself, there's not only a beautiful equestrian monument uh, of, of Meade on his horse, uh, basically right right at the center of the Union line, which was the climax of the battle. It's called the high watermark area. But just behind that, a few hundred yards, is also his headquarters, a little one-and-a-half-story, three-room house. He took over from a local civilian uh, and used it for two days as his headquarters, and that's where he'd have his councils of war with his subordinates, and he made his major decisions. Uh, that That's where I think you see, you know, uh, his handiwork, as it were, on the field. Why don't we hear about Meade then? We just mentioned that, that, uh, you know, we hear about Grant, but what happens to Meade, maybe we should say? Well, again, despite the pressure of that he's placed under with little time to really react or think, and, and he does really well in winning the battle almost immediately, even before the um, campaign is over, meaning that even before the Confederate Army crosses back into Virginia, uh, Meade starts to get criticized really heavily because um, a lot of his critics uh, are saying he should be more more aggressive. He should counterattack right away, and uh, he could have destroyed the Confederate Army before it escaped back into Virginia. And when the Confederates do finally get back over the Potomac River, <clears throat> his critics really just begin to hammer him. Yeah, Lincoln is one of those as well who is very disappointed that you know, Meade didn't do more. And all that, I think, is very unrealistic considering the pressure he was under and the circumstances he was under. He'd lost a quarter of his army, lost some of his best subordinate commanders. And to think he could destroy the Confederate Army, I think, is unrealistic. So he doesn't even get to enjoy the, you know, the fruits of victory before immediately he gets criticized and never uh, gets the real credit for what he did here. Yeah. What, what does happen to meet in later life then? I, I don't know the story after that. 
A lot of people assume that Meade is going to be replaced um, as commander of this army by General Grant, who comes in later. But actually, that, that's not true. What, Meade, um, what happens to Meade is he remains commander of this army. It's called the Army of the Potomac throughout the rest of the war. Grant, when he comes in from the west and he's promoted above Meade, he overshadows Meade. So Meade is never replaced, but he also, again, never gets any credit. And I think the ultimate insult is he faithfully commands this army throughout the rest of the war. You know, he's heavily responsible for many Union victories, eventually the fall of Richmond. And then when Lee surrenders at Appomattox Courthouse um, in April of 1865, nobody even bothers to, uh, to tell me that the surrender is going to take place or invite him to the ceremony, and he's kind of snubbed once again. Mm-hmm. Another major name that we have here would be Pickett, and we hear about Pickett's charge. What about Pickett? What, what is his background, and how does he become a prominent uh, role in this, in this battle? Pickett's an interesting figure. Um, he was very... Um, flamboyant. Uh, he looked at war as uh, a glorious thing, an adventure. Uh, even though he was obviously a man, he, he was almost a, a boyish kind of personality. Uh, compared to another real famous American who had that same kind of attitude, um, uh, George Armstrong Custer, very dashing. Uh, they both had long, you know, ringlets of hair, perfumed. And so because of that personality, Pickett um, it's natural to name the climactic Confederate attack here at Gettysburg after him, Pickett's Charge, where ultimately of the 13,000 men who made that attack on, on July 3rd, 1863, Pickett only commanded about 5,500, his own division. Um, again, I'm not to insult him. Uh, he did graduate from West Point, although he wasn't considered brilliant by any means. He graduated dead last in his class the year he graduated, and he hadn't shown any brilliance uh, in leading his men up in, to Gettysburg. Um, again, don't get me wrong, he was brave, he was a competent officer, but once they make this heroic attack, even though it was doomed, it was very heroic, it becomes natural for the Richmond press especially to, to name the attack after him, since all of his men were Virginians. He will command his division throughout the rest of the war, and then right before the war ends, um, unfortunately for him, he made a bad decision. He was attending a shad bake, uh, when his division got overrun at a place called Five Forks, which is outside of Petersburg, Virginia. And that defeat led to the collapse of Petersburg and then eventually Richmond. And when General Lee found out that uh, Pickett wasn't with his men when he should have been, he, he removed him from command. And that made, of course, Pickett very uh, bitter ab- about that. Years later, a- after the war was over, um, Pickett ran into uh, to Lee accidentally, and they had a very cold meeting, as it were, and uh, Pickett said to uh, John Mosby, who was a famous uh, Confederate guerrilla leader, uh, something like, you know, that, that man destroyed my division at Gettysburg. And uh, Mosby hit it right on the head when he replied, yes, but he made you immortal. Hmm. We, we know that there were certainly some, I guess, civilians involved. One of them we mentioned uh, was a gentleman that was a veteran of the War of 1812 but still picked up his own uh, uh, arms and came out here to fight. Yeah, John Burns, he was a, a rather a famous figure after the battle. He was in his late 60s, early 70s. He was a uh, former town constable. And um, when the war began in 1861, he tried to enlist, but, of course, they turned him away for age. <clears throat> and so when this battle begins accidentally, as it were, outside his own town, Gettysburg, on July 1st, he immediately grabbed his rifle and marched out onto the field and joined Union troops. He actually fought with those troops on the first day, he gets wounded three times. And when the Union Army is forced to retreat, he's swept up and captured by the Confederates. Now, the story goes, and I'm not sure how accurate this is, but it's a good story. Uh, technically, since he's not a soldier, John Burns can be executed for being a bushwhacker. 
uh, in fighting against the Confederates. So the story goes, uh, he told the Confederates after he threw his rifles in, you know, into the woods, uh, he was out just looking for his cows. He got caught up in the battle, and so they just let him go. What is true is that um, his fame instantly spread for what he had done. I mean, obviously the guy was very brave. So not only does uh, Matthew Brady make sure to photograph, you know, to photograph him during his visit a few weeks after the battle, but when Lincoln arrived here in November. It, in preparation for delivering the Gettysburg Address at the dedication of the new cemetery, he made sure he visited John Burns and even attended church with him during his short visit. Mm-hmm. You know, and Carl and I were visiting about this a little bit. After this battle, this town only had, what, 2,400 people, I think, or around that. How did they deal with the aftermath of this battle and, and, the, and the dead? And then as we're working, we're going to be talking about the Gettysburg Address later on with another gentleman. But uh, how do they handle just the aftermath of this, this battle? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, the battle itself lasts three days, and the aftermath lasts for years. Uh, the civilians who were left behind after this battle was over were really living in a disaster area. I mean, the, the damage from this battle was just horrific. Every civilian was affected by it. Every farmer who owned a farm, either on the battlefield proper or on the fringes of the battlefield, is going to be impacted by this. And uh, there's no such thing as, you know, any kind of federal disaster relief back then, no social welfare system to step in and help these people pick up the pieces. And many of these farmers had lost almost everything. All their food stocks, their livestock is gone, their extra food supplies are gone, their, their, their crops are trampled, their fences are gone. So, yeah, picking up the pieces after this battle was horrifically hard. It was very difficult. Uh, 30,000 wounded uh, remained uh, here just after the battle was over. Even after the Confederates retreated, over 20,000 wounded remained and who, who needed to be cared for. Uh, 7,000 dead, another 3,000 died of their wounds. That's, that's 10,000 dead that need to be buried as quickly as possible. About 3,000 horses were slain during the battle. So you don't hear nearly enough about that. Uh, but it, it changed this town forever, and the civilians who, who survived it would, I mean, always be impacted throughout the rest of their lives by what had happened here in 1863. Uh, we were talking earlier that you even had uh, a young lady that was seven months pregnant d- digging graves and so forth. Was uh, was that, I guess, commonplace that everybody had to, to pitch in with this effort? Well, the story you're, you're speaking of is Elizabeth Thorne, and I, I would say her story is common in some ways, but very uncommon in others. I think she had it worse than most, whereas many civilians, all the civilians were affected by the battle in some way, and many of had their farms taken over and used as hospitals for weeks or months later. She was, Elizabeth Thorne found herself in a, an extremely difficult situation. She was uh, six to seven months pregnant at the time, and she was the, the wife of the uh, local um, cemetery caretaker, Peter Thorne. But he had joined the Army before Gettysburg and was off serving in Virginia when this battle took place. So she took over his her husband's duties so she had to go out and dig the graves for the, the new burials. Well, now suddenly the battle's over, and the, the president of the Cemetery Association tells her, you need to start digging graves for these Union soldiers. So in the heat of summer, you know, hot and humid, she's six, seven months pregnant, she's basically told, you need to start digging graves. And, you know, Elizabeth Thorne and her uh, elderly father actually dug 100 graves before um, their work was finally taken over uh, by the creation of the new cemetery here at Gettysburg, which becomes the, the site where Lincoln delivers the Gettysburg Address. And if you know anything about the ground in this area, it's really rocky, very difficult to dig uh, a, a hole, yet alone a grave. And to me, her story is unbelievable that she was able to actually complete that work in, in, under the conditions she was under. Um, one of the many unsung heroes, I think, of Gettysburg yeah. is Elizabeth Thorne. Yeah. 
I might just ask you very quickly about the cemetery because I know we talk about the Gettysburg Address. I might not get over to that. Uh, the cemetery then, how, how, how many were buried there and how quick a time? When Lincoln was here, they only had, what, half the job done? Would that be right by the time he was here? Actually, by the time that Lincoln visited in November, four and a half months after the battle, about a third of the Union dead had been properly buried. Uh, the cemetery is going to be established um, within a month or two after the battle, but they don't want to be uh, rebegin. They don't want to rebig. I can't even talk. <laughs> they don't want to start the reburial process until the weather cools in October. To open up the graves in the heat of the summer would possibly cause an ep- epidemic, is what they were worried about. So they don't start the reburial process till October. Lincoln comes in November, and altogether the final burials are completed by March of 1864. Uh, and what the cemetery contains today are uh, the remains of over 3,500 Union dead from the Battle of Gettysburg. It was to be just a Union cemetery. And eventually, it'll also contain the, the graves of another 5,500 uh, American veterans who serve in later American wars from the Spanish-American War all the way through Vietnam. Um, it was never meant to be a Confederate cemetery, which is, I think, unfortunate. They were fellow Americans, but they weren't viewed that way right after the battle, and it took years before the Confederate dead were removed from their shallow graves and taken south where they're buried properly today. Yeah, yeah. You have a new site here, new visitor center. We should talk a little bit about that. This is a pretty nice facility that you've moved into. It has some unique features to it. Yeah, the park entered a, uh, a unique agreement with a private um partner so it's a it's a public private partnership it's a nonprofit organization called the Gettysburg Foundation it's been in the planning and and um, fundraising stages for almost 15 years and the new visitor center and museum was actually open to the public in April uh, and it's a state-of-the-art museum and for the first time in the history of Gettysburg we were able to put the battle in the context of the entire war so when visitors come here now there's 11 museum galleries that walks you basically through the entire war nine films from the causes of the war to the consequences, but of the nine galleries, uh, eight of them concentrate either on the Gettysburg campaign or the three days of battle. And so it's a state-of-the-art, first-class museum that restored Gettysburg Cyclorama, which is a masterpiece. And we also have a 22-minute film that um, also puts the battle in the context of the war. It's a wonderful facility. Yeah. Cyclorama, the world's largest painting, is that right? Or how do we? what do we say about it? It's pretty large. It is very large. <laughs> I won't sit here and say it's the world's largest, but it's pretty colossal, actually. It's uh, um, 47 feet high and almost 400 feet in circumference. And it, it was really the forerunners of, of movies. It was painted in the 1880s. And the idea was you'd stand in the middle of this colossal painting that surrounds you and and the foreground is three-dimensional it leads right up to the painting itself and it's so tall you can't even see the top of the painting so the idea was to create an illusion of reality to put the viewer in the middle of whatever historic event the cyclorama is depicted this one depicts the final day of fighting Pickett's charge and uh, up until its restoration which took place over the last three years this cyclorama has not been in such good condition and displayed it was as intended to be displayed since probably 1890 um, over 100 years ago. Uh, you, you know, maybe I'll wind up with this, and it may seem like somewhat an obvious uh, question, but we think of the revolution, we have Yorktown, we think of Civil War, certainly there's Appomattox, but it seems like Gettysburg, at least in, in a lot of folks' mind, that is the the battle. What is it that keeps people coming to uh, Gettysburg when we have so many Civil War battlefields? What is it about Gettysburg that, that continues to draw such pe- large crowds here? It is the number one Civil War site in the country, uh, and it does draw the largest uh, visitation. Um, I think 
there's a couple of reasons for that. It's not only uh, a northern battlefield making it closer to you know urban population centers like New York City and Baltimore and Washington and Philadelphia, but also it's the largest battle fought during the war and it's the bloodiest battle. Uh, 51,000 Americans in those three days were killed, wounded, or captured. But then, just as importantly, um, it's the site of the Gettysburg Address, which is the, one of the most famous speeches ever delivered in American history. And you could even claim world history. I mean, I've been here as a park ranger for 20 years, and I've met many international visitors who have come here, and when they arrive, they're surprised to find out there was a battle at Gettysburg. The reason they're coming here was because they want to see where Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address. It's been translated into hundreds of languages. So those two reasons alone um, make it you know, forever famous. Thanks for listening to this edition of The Scenic Route. Remember, you can catch all of our daily broadcasts, find links to our Facebook and Twitter pages, and much more at AmericanCountryside.com.